On this Lord's Day, we celebrate the first Lord's Day. Uh, it, that's what made it the Lord's Day. If you think about it, the Jewish people uh, worshipped on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, and then uh, that was the day of worship. But then after the resurrection, all of a sudden, God's people, the church, started worshiping on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week, because something so dramatic and transforming it happened. Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. The uh, resurrection is central to our faith. But over time, the importance of, uh, frankly, the, the importance and even the truth of the resurrection came to be questioned. Res resurrection early on uh, ran contrary to, to Greek thinking. In, in the Greek culture, in the Greek world, uh, there was a, this disconnect between the physical and the soul, the spiritual. And, and the idea of a resurrection that would reunite those was awful. And so early on, there was a struggle, even among the, especially with the influence of Greek philosophy, and, and some parts of the Jewish uh, faith didn't like it. The Sadducees rejected resurrection. And so, frankly, the resurrection was a hard sell, especially among the Gentiles. When Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians, he was addressing several problems. And I'll give you a clue. If you read through the book of Corinthians, you'll see the, a, a phrase frequently, now concerning now concerning, it's like maybe it seems like he received a letter. What about this? What about this? What about this? Uh, and so I guess if he were writing today, he'd probably say, he would say something like, to your point, to your point, to your point. Now concerning, now concerning. In chapter 15, he comes to the issue of resurrection. So as he neared the end of the epistle, he raised the issue of resurrection, pun intended. So some were questioning, some were doubting, some were denying resurrection. And we see that in chapter 1 Corinthians 15, um, verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some amongst of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? I mean, it was that bad. So as he's writing to a church, he, he says, how is it? I mean... If Christ is preached, is risen from the dead, how is it that there are some among you that say there is no resurrection from the dead? That's the context into which chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is written. The whole chapter addresses these issues. We are, this Lord's Day, going to consider um, simply chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Let me read those, and then we will proceed. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. All the 
text goes on. But we're just going to consider these eight verses today. And what Paul is arguing is, okay, some of you are denying, questioning, doubting, denying the gospel. I mean, the, the resurrection. And his point is, if you don't have the resurrection, you don't have Christianity. There is no gospel. And so we see that, for example, as he begins in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. Now, when he says, I declare to you, he says, I am declaring it to you. That's a present tense. I am declaring to you the gospel. Well, they've already embraced it he says the gospel in which you stand which you you received but he says i'm now i'm, I'm here i i've got to i've got to preach the gospel to you again we i've got to start over and so i'm going to preach to you church the gospel kind of reminds me of the incident of uh, coach vince lombardi in July of 1961, uh, he went into the, uh, the team locker room, and they were getting ready to start training for the next season. 38 Green Bay Packers sat waiting to hear what he had to say. You know, here, here comes the speech that's going to start the season. The previous December, they had finally made the NFL championship game only to lose in the last minutes to their rivals, the Philadelphia Eagles. And they were still feeling the pain. You know, that must have been a, just a, a, a miserable year. And, and, and so the, he's got to address the fact that they're probably still hurting and wondering. He had a plan, though, for the next season. And he announced it very simply. He picked up a football, held it out in front of him and said, Gentlemen, this is a football. Now, I... I suspect most of them had seen one before. <laughs> of course they knew it was a football, but what was he saying? We're starting over. We're going back to the basics. We're going back to square one. Or as I like to say, Vince Lombardi was a fundamentalist. <laughs> and, and, he was, and, 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 if, and so often you'll see that sometimes, especially it seems like when you hear it from a team that's lost. And they'll go to the coach and say, what are you going to do? We're going to go back to the basics. In this sport, it's um, throwing, catching, running, hitting. Um, we're going back to the basics. I remember the, you know, the classic uh, movie about the American hockey team that beat the Russians in 1980. And the coach kept telling, the, you know, he had all kinds of little proverbs that drove the, the team crazy. But one of them is as he, as he drilled and drilled and drilled them, he said, gentlemen, the legs feed the wolf. And the players would look at him, what's he talking about? The whole thing is, if the wolf can't run hard enough and fast enough to catch the prey, he goes hungry. But what was he saying? The, the key to successful hockey is basics. You've got to have strong legs. And the same thing Vince Lombardi was saying. We've got to get back to the very basics, so we're going to start over. I remember hearing of one of the great professional golfers. And as he was, you know, finished up the season and was getting ready to start preparing for the next season, he would go back to his teacher and he'd say, teach me how to play golf. Because, you know, some bad habits develop over time. So what, what, what Paul is saying is, I, I'm going to preach to you the gospel. 
And you can see some of them rolling their eyes and saying, Paul, we know the gospel. And, and he even says, the gospel in which you stand, the gospel you received. And, and when he says, and you stand, that's literally a, a verb in the perfect tense, which means past action, continuing results. You've taken your stand in the gospel. But I'm going to preach it to you again, because if you're having troubles with the resurrection, you're having trouble with the gospel. And so he says, some of you, and he's got good evidence for it. You know, some of you deny the resurrection from the dead. Now, now, I could just imagine. This is a letter coming from the Apostle Paul. And here are the Corinthian believers gathered. And he's saying, some of you actually are denying the resurrection from the dead. Oh, you know how churches work. People were looking. And, trying to, and, and maybe looking directly at the one that they'd had conversation with over coffee. Well, they, maybe not coffee, but they just had a conversation. Oh, well, that's, he's talking about Philip, or he's talking about this one or that one. But he, 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 he hits it hard. How can you be saying that? So I guess I've got to start over with the gospel. And though in verse 2, he says, uh, this gospel... You received, in which you took a stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so he's saying the gospel is essential, it's a fundamental to salvation. Now we're saved by grace. We're saved by God's grace. Through faith. Now our faith is ultimately in Jesus Christ. But in believing in Jesus Christ, we're believing things about him, who he is and what he's done. That's the gospel. And that's what he means when he says you are saved by the gospel, by believing in the gospel. Because the gospel is the message of who Christ is and what he's done and how we can have a relationship with him. So it's, he, notice though he goes on to say it's a saving gospel if you hold fast. Unless you believed in vain. And that's his point. If you, if you don't persevere in, in the gospel, if you don't per persevere in faith, then it wasn't a genuine faith to start with. And so there, were, there would be some that respond out of emotion. And maybe they're at a meeting and they hear things, and you've seen this where someone maybe has a, a great emotional response to the things of the gospel, to the preaching of the word. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're, they're putting a genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ. Some were intellectually convinced philosophically, these, the Greeks love that sort of thing. And so intellectually, they might have been convinced of the gospel. But that doesn't mean they're putting a personal trust in Jesus Christ. And so he says the gospel is a saving gospel. If it's a faith that's a continuing faith. If it isn't a continuing faith, it was a, a vain faith. It was an empty faith. It was a profession of faith, not a possession of faith. 
And so again, Paul is, is concerned that some of them are, their, their faith in Christ is starting to, to turn and, and be diminished and die out with time. Uh, kind of a filtering process of who, for whom was it an emotional thing? For whom was it just this intellectual? You've, you've philosophically convinced me, Paul. And so he speaks rather strongly. There are, this is a grave warning he's giving them. Later on in the chapter, in verse 14, he says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. In verse 17, he goes on to say, If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sin. If Christ is not raised, he's saying, then the gospel is empty. And those who believe in the gospel have an empty hope. If Christ isn't risen, then we're still in our sin. So he's saying here that the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential to the gospel. Now, this is an important fact today. And I don't know where you might be struggling, but... but um, the church in America, and I want to say that maybe rather than Christianity, the church in America, the church across the world, is going through quite a, quite a time of upheaval. It does in every generation, I suppose. Is it, how do we uh, respond to the influences of the culture around us? Well, the culture around us is increasingly skeptical and even antagonistic to God and to faith. And so uh, intellectually and philosophically, the, the liberal approach to Christianity is, is, is to deny the resurrection. An unbelieving heart says uh, there is no such thing as the supernatural. God doesn't do miracles. And, and you know, for years, that, that sort of thing has been around in the church. I remember hearing of, you know, you know what do we do with, for example, the, the feeding of the 5,000? And I've heard it explained, well, what the, there was a miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, the liberal would say. The miracle is everybody had brought lunch when they went to go here and preach. But in selfishness, they hid it so you know, they wouldn't have to share. When Jesus preached as he did, there was a miraculous turning of the heart so that everybody shared the meal that they'd snuck with them. Does that, that doesn't really fix the text, though. Wait a minute. It says we had this many... We had, you know, this many loaves, this many fish. We had this many baskets afterwards. You know, it's, it's, but we're trying to do, say something happened, but we can't believe in a supernatural. And they do the same with the resurrection. I've shared with you before, uh, you know, as I was scanning, you know, see how do others approach the, the resurrection message and came across uh, uh, one woman, a pastor uh, of a church preaching and saying that, uh, frankly, I'm more comfortable talking about the Easter bunny than about the resurrection. That's going on in churches across America and across the world. And yet they're claiming to be Christian. And so one approach is that, and then the, you know, it's, it's just, mis let, let's help be, explain the mystery in some way. Another approach is to say, well, the real essence of the gospel is to, to be nice people. Um, back in the early part of the 1900s, the emphasis was on a, a, a social uh, gospel. And so the gospel is all about 
homes and food for the poor and whatever else it might be. In our day, I would say the word social continues. The word justice is kind of becoming the gospel. In other words, if you're truly preaching the gospel, you're preaching social justice. What Paul said, if you're truly preaching the gospel, you're preaching sin, a crucified Savior, and a resurrected Lord. That, he says, is the gospel. Gentlemen, he would say, this is the gospel. And if you do not embrace a resurrected Jesus Christ, you do not know Christ. You do not know the gospel. You are trusting in a gospel that will not save. That's how essential this message is. It's not a condiment to sprinkle on top of some uh, Jesus. It is the essence of the gospel. If Christ is not risen, he said, your faith is futile and you're still in your sin. It's not a saving gospel. Well, in verses 3 and 4, he continues and shows how resurrection is essential to the gospel. He says in verse 3, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And when he says, I delivered to you, and that's it, kind of I handed off to you what I also received. Now, he's not saying he got this from the other apostles. He makes that clear. Uh, in Galatians 1.12, Paul said, I neither received it from man, nor was it taught, nor was I taught it. It came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. That was in Galatians 1.12. Here in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, verse 23, at the Lord's table, Paul said, I delivered to you that which I received from Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying here is, this message of the gospel is something I, it's not something I created. It's not something I speculated and mused about. This is not my philosophy of life. This is a message divinely given to me by the resurrected Jesus Christ. And he says, for that reason, it's a sacred trust. Jesus Christ gave him this gospel message to deliver to us. It's not Paul's idea. Because again, the liberals will often say, I don't like Paul. He's too mean. He's too this. He's too that. And Paul's saying, it's not about me. It's not my message. Jesus Christ gave me this message. He says, I delivered it to you. I delivered it to you. First of all, there was, this is of the prime importance This is the essential thing, the gospel. I deliver to you what I also received. So this is this Christ message, and here it is. Here's the message. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He begins with the cross. Remember he would say elsewhere, we preach Christ and him crucified. He begins with the death of Christ. We preach that Christ died. Again, in the liberal world, in the progressive world, whatever you want to call it, in the, um, the idea of Christ dying, uh, oh, that's such a negative thing. And, and churches are taking out the cross because it's offensive. Paul says, this is the essence. Jesus Christ told me to tell you this as essential for salvation. Christ died. 
for our sins. Why did he die? He died for our sins. So, And here's another problem. So first of all, the Bible, you have to believe that Jesus Christ died. You have to believe in a resurrection. But notice you also have to believe in sin. And the fact that he died for our sin means he died to pay the penalty our sin was due. Oh, people don't like that. In Christ alone, there's the phrase that, you know, the wrath of God was satisfied. There are some that want to take those words and literally, they were publishing it in their hymnals um, and took out the word wrath. They don't, it's in the Bible, but they didn't want it in their hymnal. And so the Gettys actually had to say, that's why we copyrighted the song. You do not have legal permission to go changing out the word wrath. Um, I, Paul didn't live in a day when copyright was something he could have said. <laughs> the copyrighted gospel is wrath. And so what he's saying here is Jesus died for our sin. So in the gospel, some of, notice what he's telling us. When you're thinking through communicating the gospel, you need to under, explain that Christ died and you need to explain that he died for our sin. And so you have to under, explain the concept that, uh, that, that that man is sinful and deserves the wrath of God. And I've read of accounts of, of those, like in a plane going down, where someone stood up and said, hey, we're, it's, we're going down. I want to take a few moments to quickly explain, this is, this is the, you may stand, be standing before God in a matter of moments. You need to understand this and then preach the gospel. That's not a time to say, blessed are the peacemakers. You know, um, you need to do a better job of food for the poor. No, you're sinners. God is just. How are you going to satisfy him? He died for our sins. He died for our sins. And he goes on. According to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. What he's saying is, Jesus Christ, it, when he came, lived, died as a penalty for our sin, that wasn't something new. That's right there in the Bible. It's right there in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. And so again, to the Gentiles, when he says, according to the scriptures, you can imagine the first, when some of these Corinthians heard that scriptures. What are you talking about? What's the scriptures? Well, you know, the Bible. What's the Bible? You know, Moses. Who's Moses? I was teaching at the college one time. And, and I would refer to, well, Paul says this and Paul says that. And finally, what students raise, excuse me, sir, you've mentioned this person, Paul, a few times. Who is that? And so I had to change gears, put it in reverse, go back and, you know, and, 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 and be a little more full in my explanation. But can you imagine Paul as he explained, listen to me, we have, you've, have you ever seen a synagogue inside of these scrolls? They're old. But the message on them is older than even that scroll. And in his day would have been 1,500 years ago. And he would talk about Moses writing out God's word. And he would talk about some of these prophets. And he said, in his day, he would have said of Isaiah, 700 years ago, before Rome was founded, a man named Isaiah wrote this. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him. That's speaking of this coming Messiah. Has laid on him our guilt. 
And I'm here to tell you that what was written 700 years ago has been fulfilled. And so he would, he would, and can you imagine some of these Corinthians, how these Gentiles, how it must have been so stunning. This is incredible. Things written hundreds of years ago, perfectly fulfilled in this man, Jesus. God's, and so he, but his, that's his point. This is what I told you. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and the fulfillment of prophecy and the fulfillment of God's purpose. He then goes on. And that he was buried. What's that in there for? Burial is evidence he died. Burial is evidence that he died. You don't bury someone if they're not dead. And so when he's going to get to the resurrection, you see, that's one of the things that some people were questioning. Well, maybe Jesus didn't die. And we have that thing, that, that same thing goes on today. Maybe he just, that's called the swoon theory. Maybe he just really fainted. And so he had a very, very faint pulse that they couldn't detect. Okay, so here he, you know, he'd been through a lot, lost a lot of fluid, dehydrated, weak, feeble, and he fainted away, and so they put him in there, but he wasn't really dead. Now we have a problem. How can someone who's weak, fable, feeble, and so bad off he looks dead to people who know what the dead look like, three days later he moves this massive stone and comes out and convinces them that he's the Lord of glory? That doesn't sound like he swooned. And so what Paul is saying, he was buried is the, the historical evidence that he died. He died for our sins as that's what the scripture says he was dying for his sins here's the proof he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures again the resurrection was predicted in the prophets and so he he had taken them through and taught them that but notice it's not enough that he died he had to rise again it's an essential part of the gospel and sometimes we forget that uh, we're, I remember a, a track came out one time and it's made millions of copies of it. And then someone noticed, wait a minute, there's no resurrection in here. Whoops. <laughs> and so they had to go back and revise because if he's just died for our sin, the wages of sin is death. If he's still dead, he's still paying the penalty. The resurrection is the evidence paid in full God's demands, justice is satisfied, raised from the dead. The resurrection is an essential part of the gospel. Because we might say, well, so-and-so died for your sin. Well, how do you know? Everybody dies. You know, uh, Muhammad died. Buddha died. How is Jesus different? Well, he rose again. He rose again from the dead. And it's been, you know, someone was one time said to a Christian, I think it may have been a Muslim, and said, I can take you to the, I can take you to the tomb of Muhammad. I can take you to this tomb. And that uh, named all these religious leaders. <laughs> you Christians don't even have a place where you can go and see where Jesus is buried. And the Christian said, that's the point. <laughs> oh. He's, he's resurrected according to the scriptures. And then, so if, if the death was proved by the burial, what's the proof of the resurrection according to the scriptures? And that's where verses 5 to 8 come in. 
He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to, this, to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. Last of all, he was seen by me also, Paul's writing, as one born out of time. So now he starts giving the historical evidence. If, if he was, his death was proved by his burial, now he starts walking through the witnesses. Now, remember, Paul's had the opportunity to meet some of these people, and so he's had conversations with them. He met Peter in, in Jerusalem and, and heard about his encounter. In verse 5, he was seen by Cephas. That's the, um, that's the, that's the Aramaic name. Remember, his name was Simon, and, Pete, and Jesus said to him, I'm going to call you Cephas. In Greek, it's Peter. It means the same thing, rock. I like to call him Rocky. Okay, so he was seen by Peter. He was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. The first one mentioned Peter. You know, he was he was known as one of the leading apostles in the church. So that's, you know, some of these apostles we kind of forget their names. Peter, everybody knew about Peter. Of course, that was true throughout the church in the ancient world, and that was church in, you know, true in any room in which Peter was. <laughs> Seems like Peter was one of those guys you didn't miss. But Peter, he said, was was he was seen by Peter. By the way, this, this, this list Paul gives, it's not a complete list. He, he lists about five of the ten resurrection witnesses he could. He doesn't mention the women here. But he mentions Peter. This, this event is not described in the Gospels. The Gospels don't tell us about the encounter between Jesus and Peter. They tell us it happened. When the two came back from the Emmaus Road situation, they came running back, met, found the apostles, ran into the room, said what they had discovered. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 34, um, the, the apostles respond to them, The Lord is risen indeed. Maybe we got it from them. The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, Peter. So Peter had, had, had seen the risen Lord. And then he said, and after that, he was seen by the 12. Um, and so remember, that would be the, the upper room where he met with the disciples. And he came in, you remember, and they're, they're behind the locked door. Oh, we're in big trouble. If that's what they did to Jesus, they're going to come hunting from us, for us. He came, the door was locked and he came into the room. We gather from that, not that he picked the lock, but that the door and the walls didn't stop his resurrection body. He came in and he spoke to them, peace, shalom. And remember, they weren't so convinced. They thought, you know, is this, a, is this his ghost? What's going on here? And so he, you know, he showed them his wounds. He asked, you know, have you got something to eat? Uh, and to show his flesh and blood, flesh and body resurrection. I always imagine as he ate the, uh, he talked about honeycomb and maybe some broiled fish. I wonder, by the way, if that's kind of a required Easter meal, broiled fish and honeycomb. But... Yeah, you wonder as he ate, did they, did they watch and see if it fell through? You know, did they? But the whole point is, this isn't a figment of your imagination. I am here, resurrected. So first to Peter, then we're told about the meeting with the twelve. Verse 6, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. That's the word for, for died. This event is not clearly described in the Bible, but most people think it's what's seen in Matthew 28. 
Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brethren, go to Galilee and there they will see me. And then goes on, I think verse 16 and describes how he came before. Remember, he, he showed himself, but not all believed. Some think that's the 500 there. This verse has always been especially precious to me. The very first time that someone presented the gospel to me, they were using a tract. And, and I've shared with you before, I, at this point, I didn't know if there was a God. And I told the kind fellow that. Um, I don't, don't know if there's a God, so I don't know how Jesus can be a son. I, I just don't know what to do with what you've told me. But I remember as he was opening that track, I don't even think he read it, but right there on the page, I looked at those words, and there, there was 1 Corinthians 15, 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 witnesses. And I can still remember being stunned as I saw that. 500 witnesses. How many events in history have 500 witnesses? You know, the, the biblical law just says two witnesses will do it. And we're usually satisfied with that. You know, one witness is a little sketchy to 500 witnesses. And then Paul goes on to say, some of them are dead. Most of them are alive. It's, this is some 20, 25 years after the resurrection. And so he's saying, you could talk to. You, you might meet someone. You know, Corinth was a big city. And if you go to some of these international cities like... Um, San Francisco, like uh, um, London. I saw this a lot in Jerusalem you know, all the time. You, you, you never know who'd be sitting next to you in church, someone from who, all, all these different countries, or someplace like uh, Wills Point. You know, um, you know, all these international travelers may be passing through. You never, they may have met some. I always imagine in this time when Paul re, you know, reads, when, when they're reading this out, uh, there are more than 500 witnesses, many who live to this day, I can just picture being in a packed crowd. Everyone's here to hear the, read the, you know, we got a letter from Paul. Let's hear it. But as he said, that more than 500, many, many live today. And, and someone's sitting next to a stranger, all of a sudden he, he gets a nudge. <laughs> you were there? <laughs> yep. I'll buy your lunch. <laughs> as soon as this sermon's over, I'll buy your lunch. I want to hear all about it. But that's the whole point. You could, you could, at that point, you could still talk to someone. There were, there were more of them alive than dead who were still traveling and could say, I'm one. I saw him. I saw the resurrected Christ. And frankly, I had a hard time believing it. But there he was. There he was. So he's saying there are witnesses. There's a lot of witnesses. And at that point, many of them still alive. And then he goes on. After that, he was seen by James. Now, James is important. Some, there's different Jameses running around, but everyone seems to believe since he's already talked about the apostles. This is James, not the, one of the apostles, James, the brother of Jesus. The brothers of Jesus didn't believe in him, and they mocked him. Uh, Luke chap, John chapter 7, his brothers were saying to him, Depart from here, go into Judea. This is... John 7, verses 3 to 5. That your disciples may see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while himself seeks to be known openly. And it goes on to verse 5. For even his brothers did not believe in him. So they say, why did you go down and make a show of your stuff? They'd lived with him. They'd seen him. 
They knew him, and they didn't believe in him. They mocked him. And yet, James and Jude are brothers of Jesus who write epistles in the New Testament. What happened? I believe this, is, this explains it. He appeared to James. So one of those, and again, it's not recorded in the Gospels. Apparently, he sought out his brother James. said, James, I'm risen. That's a conversation I look forward to having in heaven. So James, tell me about your meeting. Can't you just imagine, as, as his heart was moved with believing faith in Christ, how he must have just melted in tears. For 30 years, brother, I mocked you. Called you the goody two-shoes of the family. <laughs> I, 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 I resented your sinlessness. I couldn't believe that you would be the Messiah. What could transform a James? After that, he appeared to James. That explains it. That explains it. Then he was seen by all the apostles. I would take that as the second uh, meeting with the apostles in the room. The next week, John 20, 26 describes this one. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. By the way, when he says, I think he mentioned in the previous one, he met with the 12. That's, that was kind of a... Um, a nickname or title for the group, it doesn't mean all 12 were there. Because when he met with the 12, there were two missing, Thomas and Judas. But they were still called the 12. That's kind of what they called them. And so, but here he says, he, the, this, he, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, Thomas with them, so now it's the 11. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, stood in their midst and said, Shalom. So he's, he just recounts one after another to an individual, to a group of the, to the 12 more than once, to, the, to 500, because a lot of people said, oh, it was just a figment of your imagination. Oh, you, you just wanted to see him. Well, one person maybe, dozens, 500 over a period of time. Proof he's risen. But then he goes on in verse 18. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. All the other apostles had been with him from the beginning of his ministry. Paul didn't come along until after the resurrection. He was, he was an enemy of the gospel, hunting Jesus' followers down in Damascus. And Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. As one born out of time, he appeared to me, Paul says, I am, a, I, am a res, I am a witness to the resurrected Jesus. If you deny resurrection, I have a problem with that. I've seen him. I've heard his instructions more than once. I've passed on to you what he told me. How can you deny? Can't you, this is where, this may have been one of the first preachers to pound on the pulpit. How can you be denying the resurrection? What is Wrong with you people, brethren. So what I want to do then, as was said from this, I just want to remind us. At, the, at, at Easter, on Resurrection Day, we are celebrating one of the greatest events, if not the greatest. I have to wrestle with that. What's the greatest? Was it Calvary? Was it the cross? I think you could argue that. Was it creation? That was a pretty good one. 
<laughs> you know, where, what's, what's the greatest event? Well, let's just say resurrection certainly is one of them. Certainly one of the greatest events of history, and that's important. The Christian faith is not a, a moral code. The Christian faith is not a worldview. It's not a philosophical system. It is historical fact. It is, it is not a bunch of, of, of mystical tales that are meant to convey spiritual and moral truth. It is historical fact. And Paul says, and if, the, if it isn't fact, it is worse than empty. It's a lie. The Christian faith is built on fact. Established fact. Established with all the witnesses of history. The, the, the Christian, the resurrection is fact. The resurrection is essential to the gospel. If you deny resurrection, you are denying the gospel. And so if ever you find yourself hearing, uh, reading a book, reading an article, seeing something online, sitting in a church listening to, what do you do, would be doing there? But sitting in a church listening to a preacher denying that the resurrection is true, that is a, 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 that's someone without the gospel who does not know the Christ. It's that simple. Again, Paul said, if Christ is not risen, verse 14 of this chapter, then our preaching is empty, your faith is also empty. Verse 17, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sin. An unresurrected Savior is not a Savior. So again, someone claiming to be a Christian, or worse, a preacher, denying the resurrection is a vain believer. It's an empty faith. They're building, I was going to say, you know, they're all building your house on sand. I don't think that does an adequate job. Sand still kind of holds you. You're building your house on a melting pond. You're building your house on a melting pond. If Christ is not raised, our sins were not paid for in full. Christ is still suffering the penalty of sin if there is no resurrection and if Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, our faith is false fairy tales. If Christ is not raised, we have no hope of our own resurrection. I've said it a number of times. One of the things that so helps me when I stand by that grave and say, this is a temporary holding place. This isn't the end. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. The French mathematician Auguste de Comte was talking about religion one day with Scottish essayist Thomas Carlyle. Comte suggested they start a new religion to replace Christianity based on positive thinking and mathematical principles. Carlyle thought about it a moment and replied, very good, Mr. Comte, very good. All you will need to do will be to speak as man never spoke, live as a man never lived, be crucified and rise again the third day and get the world to believe that you are still alive. Then your religion will have a chance to get on. And good luck with that, he didn't say, but that's the difference. William Sangster, the great Methodist leader who helped guide Londoners through the horrors of World War II bombings, fell ill to a disease that progressively paralyzed his body and eventually his vocal cords. 
On the Easter, just before he died, he managed to scribble this short note to his daughter. How terrible to wake up on Easter and have no voice to shout, He is risen. Far worse to have a voice and not want to shout. He is risen. You're not convincing me. Let's try that one again. He is risen. Risen indeed. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you told us this would happen in your word centuries before so we could see and understand. Father, thank you for raising Jesus Christ from the dead to show us what he did, did truly pay for our sin. Lord, I pray if any here has yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, open their eyes as you opened that tomb. Speak life into their hearts as you did to Lazarus' dead body. Father, I pray for any who have yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that even today would be their day of faith. But Father, for those of us who know Christ as Savior, we thank you for the glorious assurance we have in him, our risen Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.